chapter 3, John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 16 through 18. We'll pray and then we'll jump right in. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight desiring to hear you speak to our hearts. Lord, above all of the other distractions, above all of the technical difficulties and everything else, Lord, we just desire to hear your heart spoken to us through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit tonight. We pray that each one of us would be attuned to everything that you desire to speak to us and, and that we would be receptive to the things that you desire to see changed within us. We ask for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit tonight that, that we would be fully prepared and empowered to understand the things that you're speaking to us and to apply them to our lives. We pray that you would remove any of the distractions, any of the worries, the anxieties of this day, of this life, and just allow us to be set and focused upon you tonight as we study your word. I also pray that you would order my thoughts, that you would give me your words to speak and not my own, and that you would be exalted, honored, and glorified in everything we say and do. And we ask and pray all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's been an interesting day, as is always the case, when I'm preparing to teach. And God always reveals so much on that day. You know, I, I'm extremely blessed every time I get the opportunity to share, not just because I enjoy teaching, but also because I enjoy learning. And it seems that, that that's just one of the ways that God really ministers to me personally, is that as I'm studying, he's giving me so many things just for me, things that, that I, I just wouldn't have the time to share if I, if I had a week and, and it's just a, an awesome, awesome experience for me. It's an awesome, awesome time for me. But it's also a cool thing because I get to see some of the things that God is at work doing, not just in my life, but in my family's life and also in my extended family's life, which is the congregation here at Calvary El Paso. And, and this, this time was no different. God has continued to just be abundantly faithful and gracious and merciful. And he, I believe, has has really spoken to me some things that, that I think we need to be encouraged in. You know, a lot of times I, I get the opportunity and, and the, the privilege, but also the responsibility to exhort. But tonight I really feel like the, the main thing is to be encouraged, to be encouraged in the things that we're doing. You know, recently there have been a lot of things that have taken place in our country. You know, on Wednesday nights we've also been going through all of the, the prophetic things that, that are about to happen. And when I say about to happen, I, I don't know. That could be today. It could be right now. It could be next week. It could be next year. It could be decades from now. But we know that things are setting up, that this is the end. You know, that we're getting closer and closer. We're obviously closer to the end than we've ever been before. 
and closer to the return of Jesus Christ. And, and as we continue to draw closer to that time frame, the world just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And there are so many things taking place. And, and some of the things that have taken place since the last presidential election are, are alarming. I mean, just really, really alarming about the direction that, that we are taking as a nation. You know, one of the things that, that came up in the news recently was a, a confirmation hearing for someone that had been appointed to a White House position. The man's name was Russell Vaught, and he was nominated to be the Deputy White House Budget Director by President Trump. And during his confirmation hearing, Vaught was attacked, not physically, but he was verbally, viciously attacked by Senator Bernie Sanders for believing just like we do, that Jesus Christ is the one and the only way. You know, as he went through, he, he just continually questioned him. He kept coming back at him, talking about a, a paper that, that this man, Russell Vaught, had written in defense of his faith, in defense of the, the public statement of faith by his alma mater, Wheaton College. And one of the things that kept coming back was the word condemnation, to be condemned. Then he, he wrote, as the Bible clearly lays out, that aside from Jesus Christ, everyone is condemned to death. That we have been injected, if you will, with this sin nature. That from the time that we're born, we are sinners. We're sinners by nature. We're born into it. And that there's only way, one way for us to be reconciled. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made it very clear that he was the one and the only way. And then, as we just read in John 3, 16 through 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a verse that we know, most of us by heart, by memory. It's a verse that, that has ministered to us in many different ways and has also challenged us to minister to others. But then he continues on in verse 17, and he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't the purpose. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't happen. But the purpose was not to condemn the world. The purpose was that the world, through him, through Jesus Christ, might be saved. That he who believes in him, believes in Jesus Christ, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And it's not about us condemning. It's not about us judging. It's not about us trying to, to hold people to a standard that we wouldn't hold ourselves to. It's not about any of those things. It's about believing that God is who he says he is, that he sent his Son, a part of the triune God, a part of the Trinity, that he sent his Son to die on the cross as a propitiation, the, the big word that we hear all the time, as a recompense, as the payment for our sins and for the sins of everyone in the world. And that we have this one opportunity, this whole life boils down to this one choice, whether we choose to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior or not. And so we do believe that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are condemned. Not because we say so, but because God says so because he made it very clear in his word, but also we believe that he sent his son so that no one would have to receive that condemnation, that damnation to hell, so that no one would have to endure that. We know as you go through the word of God that hell was not created for mankind. 
It doesn't mean that there aren't people that are going there. It doesn't mean that people aren't going there and they're not going to suffer. But it means that that wasn't the purpose of that place. The purpose of that place was a punishment for Satan and for all that fell with him. But if we don't choose Jesus Christ, if we don't acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior and then allow him to change our lives, because it's more than just saying words, it's more than just calling ourselves Christians. But if we don't acknowledge that and begin that relationship and begin that transformative process, then we're condemned. And as you go through, you can have debates, you can have discussions about all sorts of different merits. All the things that you could do and that you have done, the ways that you have earned your way into heaven, and yet none of those things matter in the grand scheme of things. None of those things matter when it comes time to be judged. That it's appointed to man once to die and to be judged. And we are not our own judges. It's not a jury selected by our peers. It's a holy, perfect, righteous, unfailing, all-knowing, omniscient God. And he's the one that does the judging. And so in comparison to him, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we know all of these things. But as this man, Russell Vaught, was going through this confirmation hearing, this Senator Sanders kept coming back and coming back to this phrase that he had used that those, particularly in, in the context of the, the piece that he had written, he was talking about Muslims, but it extends to everyone, that those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God and the only way to heaven stand condemned. And as he continually verbally just tried to bait him over and over and over again, he just kept getting the same answer, that this was what he believed, that he's a Christian and that he was writing these things not to be judgmental, but because this is a religious belief. This is something that he holds to be true, just as Christians throughout time have held this to be true. Since Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, we've held this to be true. And then the, the conflict ended by Senator Sanders coming out and saying in his own words that these people are not what this country is all about. Basically, in effect, saying that Christians are not what this country is all about and that being a Christian and believing, holding a biblical view of, of salvation and, and, in effect, condemnation, that holding a biblical Christian view of condemnation and salvation is a disqualifying factor in being named to a government post. I mean, that, that should just blow you away. There are so many things that take place, and yet as I was going through all of the different news headlines, all the things that have happened, today there was a shooting. There were actually two of them. There was one that was perpetrated at a baseball field while, while Republican congressional leaders were, were out there having a, a baseball practice. There was also a, a shooting in a, a UPS facility, I believe it was in San Francisco. And there are some, so many other things that take place. And you can tell that this nation is going downwards in so many different ways. And there are countless reasons for that. But one of them I firmly believe is that Christians have been removed from so many places. And that being a Christian is no longer valued and in, in fact is not even just like an average thing. Now it's disdained. It's looked down upon. 
And I truly believe that we need to be challenged, but most importantly, encouraged to be who God has called us to be. To understand that being a Christian is about so much more than what we are against. That being a Christian is about being close to Jesus about wanting to be more like him and wanting to bring as many people as possible closer to him as well. Because we know that we have the solution. We know that we have the one and only way to salvation, the one and the only thing that is going to keep people from being eternally damned to hell, to be condemned to that eternal damnation, eternal punishment. And so that's our responsibility. That's, that's our challenge. It's our purpose if we've been called to be a part of this family. And so I think that, again, it's important for us to be encouraged, to be challenged, and I think one of the best ways to do that is to be able to see how Jesus went about doing the things that he did with his disciples. And so the first thing that we're gonna look at tonight is the selection process, just part of the selection process that Jesus used as he was choosing the 12 men that would be his disciples, that would, would get the behind the scenes look at his life, at who he was, at, at what he did and the way that he went about living on this earth. And so that brings us to Luke chapter five. Luke chapter five, beginning in verse one, it says, so it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, this is Simon Peter, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. And then in verse four it says, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so just a little bit of background that, that takes place right before this chapter. Jesus has, has already begun the, the working of his ministry here on the earth. You know, he's obviously done so many things that, that weren't recorded that we don't even know about as he was growing up. But now he's gotten to the place where it's time to start his earthly ministry. And immediately prior to that, he goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted. As he's fasting, as he's praying, he's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan comes and he does all of these things, but the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, comes upon Jesus in a great and mighty way. Obviously, he's able to endure the temptation to remain completely perfect and blameless without fault. And then he goes about and he's starting to teach and he's sharing all these things and the multitudes are starting to gather. And that gets us to chapter 5 where these multitudes have gathered and he's kind of tried to get away from them, but they followed him. And so he goes and as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the edge of the lake and he sees these boats there, these fishermen's boats. And so he gets into one and it's Simon Peter's. Now, one of the things that we obviously have to understand if we are children of God, if we believe the Bible to be true, if we believe God to be who he says he is, is that there is nothing that happens randomly or by chance. Everything that takes place in this life is, is something that God has foreseen, 
God already knows everything that's about to happen. And so it wasn't a random thing that, that this was the boat that he got into. He was intentionally choosing this boat because he was intentionally choosing this man to be a part of his ministry. And so he gets into this boat, it happens to be Simon's, and he asks him to put out a little from the land, and so he sits down and he teaches the multitudes from the boat. After he finishes teaching, then he tells Simon to go out a little bit further, and then once they get out there, he tells him to let down the nets for a catch. And this begins uh, a series of events that is going to completely transform Simon Peter. It completely changes his life, but also it begins this series, this pattern that Simon has of disagreeing and arguing with Jesus directly to his face. And that's an interesting thing to take note of because he starts it from the get-go. This is the first time that he has ever met Jesus and he's already starting to argue with him. He says, Master, we've toiled all night. We've caught nothing. But nevertheless, I'm going to patronize you. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and indulge you. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And so then they go ahead, they let down the nets, and when they've done this, they catch a great number of fish, so much so that the net was breaking that they had to call their, their partners in the other boat. The partners in the other boat come, and it's still so much that the boats are about to sink. And so Simon Peter, you know, it wasn't just the teaching. It wasn't just the things that Jesus had spoken, but it was also the ways that Jesus practically ministered to Peter's life that allowed him to see that Jesus was something special, that Jesus was different than anyone else he had ever met. And so he gets down on his knees in the boat and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I mean, this didn't happen after this hellfire and brimstone speech. This didn't happen after Jesus had told him, look, these are all of your sins. These are all the things that I know you've done. It happened as Jesus was ministering directly into his life while being holy and perfect and righteous and without blame. And it's important that we see that picture in Jesus Christ, is that there was a time to be able to confront people directly with their sins, that there was a time for the hellfire and the brimstone, for the repent, the kingdom is at hand, but there is also time to mix in love and grace and mercy. And Jesus, as we've studied before in, in the book of John, he's described as this perfect mixture of grace and truth. That it's not just about hammering the points home, but it's also about understanding grace and the application of it. About understanding love and how to exhibit it even in day-to-day -day interactions. And so Jesus is beginning this ministry here and he's starting with these guys. Because before they are empowered and enabled to go out and to minister to others, they had to be ministered to. And so he begins to minister to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter recognizes it. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And how often do we find ourselves in a similar place to, to Simon Peter? That, that we know that God is putting something in our hearts to do, that, that God is calling us to step out in faith, to do something that, that we know doesn't make sense, that we know we've already tried this, God, and it didn't work. I've already talked to this person before about you and it didn't work. Or I've already taken a stand and I watched as all of these people ripped me on social media. 
that I've taken a stand and I saw as I was passed over for a promotion, as I was ostracized, as I was alienated, whatever it is that God is calling us to do. And we look at it and we say, but God, I've already tried it and it doesn't work. And we begin to argue with God. And we have this conversation. And if, if we're lucky, if we're blessed enough, we recognize quickly enough that we need to just go ahead and indulge Jesus, to indulge the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then we step out and we do it. And God does this miraculous thing. And we are reminded of how far above our thoughts and our ways God truly is. Because God does something miraculous and, and it's something that blows us away and it blows so many other people away. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing all the time. And it humbles Peter just as it should humble us. So much so that they dropped everything and they followed after him. In verse 9 it says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. And that was what Jesus was getting to. That was the point of this whole exchange, this whole interaction. It wasn't so that they could get all of these fish. It was so that he could begin to get to their hearts. Jesus wasn't trying to humiliate them or to make them feel foolish or dumb. He was simply showing them that he knew a better way, that his ways were so much better than their ways. The goal here was obviously not to select the sharpest tools in the shed, though, because if he was going to do that, he would have gone to a synagogue. He would have gone to, to some sort of uh, an institution of higher learning. He would have gone and he would have gotten a, a, a person that was extremely successful in business or a successful politician or any number of different places that he could have gone and yet he chose to go and to get an uneducated group of fishermen and this was where he started because the goal here was to select men who could be used for the glory of God to shine through. And Jesus would continue the search for these men later on in the chapter jumping all the way down to verse 27 in Luke chapter 5, it says, After these things he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And so he left all, rose up, and followed him. That was all it took. And then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so even in the midst of this, as he's calling out to fishermen, as he's calling out to a tax collector, again, of all the people in Israel that he could have chosen from, these are definitely not the best places that, that any sane person would have thought of. Of all the people in Israel, some of the least worthy for religion were the tax collectors because they were thieves and they were often dishonest, and the fishermen who couldn't be trusted to handle the religious texts because of their lack of education. And yet this was exactly where Jesus began. This was exactly where Jesus began because he knew that they would recognize their need for a Savior. They would recognize their need for a Savior. 
I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with different people in all different walks of life, all different ages, all different socioeconomic groups. And one of the things that tends to come up is, is salvation and how do you get to heaven and whether or not there's a need for Jesus. And so many times I hear, well, I'm a good person. And so, I, you know, I, I go to church every now and then and God and I have an understanding. You know, and the words change, the phrases are different, but, but the general gist of it is that God and I have an understanding. I try to do good, especially when I'm at church, and the rest of the time, he kind of lets me be. He lets me do what I need to do, and, you know, at the end, everything's going to weigh out, and I've done a little bit more good in my life than bad, and so God's going to let me into heaven. And that's a, that's a thing that, that even has spread inside the churches nowadays in America. It's this idea that, that you can get into heaven by your own merit, on your own doing. And so many people are so far from the kingdom of God because they feel they are so good and so close to the kingdom of God. And it's a, it's a scary thing to think about because I would suggest to you that the people that are farthest from the kingdom of God are the people that truly believe they are the closest to the kingdom of God apart from Jesus Christ. The people that think that they're good people, that, that they've done all of these things, that they're, that they're good, they're innately good, those are the people that have the hardest time recognizing their need for a Savior. And this was exhibited in, in the very things that Jesus was encountering here. Because the Pharisees were so far from the kingdom of God, despite being so well-versed in the religious texts, so well-versed in all of the prophecies that pointed to Jesus, so well-versed in the Old Testament of the Bible that, that really speaks about Jesus in so many different ways, and yet here is Jesus standing in front of them, and they can't recognize him. And yet you have a tax collector that, that Jesus comes, and, and he just speaks to him, and he says, follow me, and the tax collector drops everything and follows after him. That he goes and, and the, the simplicity of just having this immense catch of fish is enough for these fishermen to recognize their need for something different, their need for something better, their need for a savior. And so Jesus says that those who are well have no need of a physician. And he's not really talking about those who really are well. He's talking about those who think they are well, but they're not. But he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's the last thing in that passage to get, is that he wasn't pulling the punches. You know, I, I talked about it a little while ago, that, that it, it's not always the fire and brimstone, but that there is that perfect mixture of grace and truth, that people still have to understand their need for a Savior. And why do you need to be saved? Why do you need a Savior? Because of the error of your ways, because of our sins, because of our frailties, our shortcomings, our faults, the things that we have done wrong, the things that have caused us to be at war with God, our flesh, nature, again, that we've been born into. We are innately sinners, and we have need of a Savior to save us from the judgment of our, of our own making, because we are the ones that are committing the sins. And so we need Jesus Christ. And so we need to be able to, to recognize that before we can really be saved. And that goes for anybody. And so this is part of what we've been called to do. And 
it helps that we're not perfect. You would think that that would be a, a, a disqualifying factor in ministry. And, and not just ministry, talking about being a pastor or an elder or a ministry leader per se, but that it would disqualify you from being able to talk to somebody else about Jesus. But in reality, this is the one group, the one association that you actually have to not be qualified in order to get into. Because Jesus didn't come to save those who were well. Those who thought they didn't need him, he came to save those who were lost and recognized it. And so that's who we are. That's who he's called us to be. To be the sinners that are being continually challenged and changed by his love, his grace, and his mercy. But then to go out and to do something about that. A little bit later on in the book of Luke, in chapter 22, beginning in verse 24, it says that there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. So this has come to the end of the ministry. They're, they're getting ready to, they're actually at the Last Supper. They're getting ready to say goodbye to Jesus, and they don't even really understand it yet. But there's a dispute among them to which one of them should be considered the greatest. And so he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? And yet, I am among you as the one who serves." And no matter what we say, there is this relentless tug in all of us to be great. It doesn't matter who you are. And it might manifest itself in, in your life, not as this, this egocentric thing where you're trying to be great, but maybe it manifests itself as this fear of being worth nothing, this fear of your life having no meaning, having no value. But really, in effect, it's the same thing. It's, it's this desire to be worth something, this desire to be great, this desire to be esteemed, to be looked up to, to be cared about, to be thought of. All of these things, they're, they're ingrained within us. And so this is an innate thing that, that Jesus is trying to get them to understand that, that in and of itself, it's not bad, but it has to be directed into the right place. Because if we are looking to be great in the eyes of men, then we have missed the mark. That we are supposed to be looking to be great in the eyes of God. And so he says to them that the kings of the Gentiles, they do all of these things. They exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But that's not the way it's supposed to be with you. There's a reason that, that one of the, the terms that are, is often used for pastor is minister. Because part of our job, part of our calling, is to minister to people, to pour into the lives of the congregation, to pour into your lives, to minister to you, to serve you, to help you, to be there for you as an extension of God, to be there to help, to do the things that, that God has called us to do, to, to, to empower and to prepare you to then go out and to do the same into the lives of others. That he's called us for the edification of the body of Christ, for the preparation of the work of ministry to go out and to further expand the family of Christ, 
Sometimes we, we use the word or the phrase kingdom of God, and that's true, and it's valued, and it's important, and we need to understand that that's, that's what it is. But we also need to understand that being a part of the kingdom of God means that you are a part of a family, a family that is supposed to love each other, a family that is supposed to pour into the lives of each other, a family that is supposed to care about the things that happen, not just the good things, but also the bad things, a family that is not supposed to judge for the sake of judging and condemning, but a family that is supposed to help each other be held accountable so that as iron sharpens iron, we can sharpen the countenance of our friends, that we can grow together towards the Lord, that we can grow in our relationship with him. And so part of that is to serve. We are called to serve. And Jesus was showing them this better way to fulfillment, to be a servant of all. You know, I am personally truly blessed in so many different ways, but one of the greatest is by my family. You know, to, to be blessed with, with a beautiful and loving wife and to be blessed with four amazing children. You know, it is truly, I, I cannot stress to you enough the blessing that they are to me. And one of the things that has happened in my life, and, and this is just a simple thing. This is not the, the whole of learning to be a servant, okay? But one of the simple ways that God began to show that to me about what it means and what it's like, what it's supposed to feel like, what it's supposed to look like, is when you start getting towards Christmas or towards a birthday, you know, there was a time in my life, not just when I was a kid, but even as I was grown, before I was married, before I had kids, that Christmas and birthdays, you know, it, it was all about me. You know, like, where, where am I going to go? Where are people going to celebrate me? What are people going to get me? And obviously, it's, let's not beat around the bush. Some of that's selfish. Let's be real. We all have that in us. But some of it is just wanting to be appreciated. Wanting that... that that extra, I guess, affirmation, that that's part of the fulfillment for us. But one of the things that has happened in my life is that as I have grown in my, my relationship with my wife and our marriage, as I've watched my kids grow, you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter is getting ready to be seven. Our, our youngest is going to turn one at the end of this month. But as I've been able to watch them grow, one of the greatest differences in Christmas is being able to see the joy on their faces. It's not, it really no longer is about all the things that, that I want or the things that I could get or that I'm hoping for. It's really about all the things that, that I'm gonna be able to, to give to them. And not just gifts, not just things that I can buy, but it also extends to, to parts of me, my life, my time, my affirmation, my love expressed towards them. Whatever it is that I can do to help them feel appreciated, to minister to them, to pour into their lives. And it is such a great feeling to be able to do that. And by extension, it's a great feeling to be able to do that within our bigger family, the body of Christ. 
If you have never had that experience, if you've never had that opportunity, I would challenge you to find a way to do that, to pour into somebody else's life in the body of Christ, to minister, to get involved, whether it's a children's ministry thing or a worship ministry, a sound ministry, the, the, the emergency response team, the men's ministry, women's ministry, whatever it is, to find a way to be used, to get what we call plugged in, to find where God has gifted and enabled you to be a functioning part of the body of Christ. And that might be in a ministry here. It might be by ministering to your coworkers. It might be by ministering to, to your blood relations. Whatever it is, God has gifted you, God has prepared you, and he has placed within each one of us this, this whole, this, this area of our lives that really can only be fulfilled by serving others the way that he desires to serve others. There's, there's that nagging spot, and you can try to fill it with all sorts of other things, but the only way to really fulfill that area of your life, of your heart, of your being, of however you want to think about it, is to be used by God to impact the life of somebody else. And it's an awesome feeling. It is an awesome, awesome blessing. And, and again, just in a microcosm, in a small way, to be able to see that, to understand what that looks like, what that feels like, just to be able to think about the difference between receiving a gift and giving a gift. That when you can really get to a place where you enjoy watching someone's face light up by something that you have done for them, as much as you receive fulfillment and enjoyment, for receiving something that somebody else has done for you. And that's what it means to serve. But service also includes sacrifice. God is sending us out into the world to do these things, and he knows that it's a, a rough place out there. Jesus sent the disciples out, and he's sending us out in the same way. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, Jesus has already gone through the crucifixion. He's already gone through everything leading up to the cross. He's already overcome the power of sin and death. He's been resurrected. He's already appeared to the disciples, to so many others over, over the next few weeks. And now he's gotten to the place where it's time for him to ascend to heaven. And this is one of the last things that he tells these, these followers of his before he leaves. And being assembled together with them in verse 4, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they knew that the kingdom was coming. They knew that Jesus was and is the king, that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that he is the son of God. They knew all of these things, and they knew from the things that he had spoken that there was a time coming that it was not going to just be true in heaven, but that it was going to be true physically here on the earth. And so they're asking him, is this the time? You know, you've been around now. You, you overcame sin and death. Like, what more could there possibly be? So is this the time? Is this when it's going to happen? And in verse 7, he says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So he tells them, look, it's not right now, and it's not for you to know when it's going to happen. But it is for you 
to wait and to be prepared to be empowered then to go out and do something because then he says and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth and that is the same calling that God has placed on our lives is for us to wait to receive that power from on high to to receive what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit the coming upon the empowering of the Holy Spirit you know, it's something that, that I think is just grossly undervalued within the, the Western church. And it's something that's not fully understood by many people. But there is a, an additional work of the Holy Spirit. The, the first thing is to convict the world of sin. You know, that, that the Spirit is in the world and that's how we recognize our need for a Savior. The second thing is to, to bring us to Him and, and to enable us to, to try to live rightly, to enable us to do the right things, to be able to hear him speak to our hearts through his word, through many other ways. But then there's the coming upon, the, the being empowered, the being imbued, to be given spiritual gifts, to be enabled and prepared to go out and to bring others into the family. And so he says to wait to receive this power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and then you will go out and you will be used for the, the kingdom of God, you will be used for my ministry here on the earth, that you will be empowered, you will be prepared. And so God is preparing us, he's leading us, but he's also calling us to use the things that he had already given us. And one of those things is logic. God has called us to be logical. He's called us to be practical and to be realistic at the same time. Coming back to Luke chapter 22 in verses 35 through 38, he said to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So there was a time earlier on in his ministry that he had sent them out and he told them, Don't take anything. Don't take anything. Don't take money. Don't take an extra knapsack. Don't take extra clothes. Don't worry about anything. I'm just sending you out. You need to go. And he empowers them and they, they go out. They do healings. They do miracles. They cast out demons. They do all of these things in the name of Jesus. And he sent them out to do that and he told them, don't take anything. But this time he says, did you lack anything when I sent you out? And they said nothing. But then he said to them in verse 36, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And this, this phrase that he's using there, it is enough. He's not talking about the swords. Hey, two swords, that's going to be all we need. Because we know, because we already know the rest of the story, that there's this angry mob that comes to get Jesus. Two swords was definitely not going to be enough without the power of God. And with the power of God, they definitely didn't need any swords. So when he says it's enough, he's not talking about the swords. He's telling them, that's enough. This, this part of the conversation is over. You don't need to worry about that yet. And later, later on, they're going to start to see it. They're going to start to understand it. And they'll be reminded of something that, that they were told back in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 22. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He knows exactly what he's calling us to do. He knows that he is sending us out in many ways, defenseless of our own means. That there's not enough of us to be able to accomplish the things that he's calling us to do. 
There's not enough of us to battle against the enemy the way that we are going to need to do. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. They will scourge you in their synagogues, in their churches. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles that you are going to be attacked in the presence of the government, of government officials, of government leaders. But then he says, when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and curse them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus wasn't sugarcoating it for them. He wasn't sugarcoating it for us either. He knows that it's difficult. He was crucified. He obviously knows that it was difficult. He knows that the things that he went through, that there were going to be many that would follow him that were going to have to go through very similar things physically. None of us have to go through the same battles that he went through spiritually. But physically, he knew that there was going to be a time coming that they were going to have to go through things. And he didn't want them to be unprepared or unaware. And he doesn't want us to be either. He wants us to be encouraged, though, that when those times come, whether it's a physical attack, whether it's a verbal attack, whether it's any kind of an attack, even if it's a spiritual attack, because those are prevalent, those happen a lot, that whatever kind of attack it is, that we would understand that we will be hated by all for his name's sake, but that he who endures to the end will be saved, and that he has prepared us to go through these things. And safety it's something that, that we relish, something that we, we, we enjoy, something that especially in this nation we have been privileged to have for so long as Christians. But safety is a relative term. In fact, Satan himself had already specifically asked for Simon Peter way back. In Luke chapter 23, going back there, in verses 31 and 32, it says, The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And so Satan has specifically asked for Simon Peter's life, that he would be able to attack him, to challenge him, to tempt him, to do whatever it is that he could do to bring this man down. He had asked for him specifically. Satan is a finite being. He can't be in a bunch of different places at once. He can only be in one place and he is powerful. He's finite. It means he can only be in one place and his, he's been created so his power has limits. He still has to ask God for the opportunity, for permission. But he's powerful. And he asked specifically for Satan. But he had to ask for permission and it was granted to a certain degree, but Jesus tells him that he prayed for him, that he's already been praying for him, that he's been interceding on Peter's behalf with God the Father. 
What a beautiful thing that is to, to be reminded of, to know that, that he is the great intercessor, that he is the one that is continually praying, that he is, is our access to the Father, to know that, that we don't even know what things we ought to pray for, but that the Spirit makes groanings and utterings which cannot be heard or understood on our behalf. And so Simon had been asked for, and yet Jesus had been praying for him. And, and Peter, though, that wasn't enough. You know, Jesus is telling him, hey, look, man, Satan really wants to mess up your life. I'm telling you right now, this is without a doubt, this is Jesus, the Son of God, and he is telling Peter, Satan wants to mess you up. And Peter's response is, don't worry about it. I got it. I'm ready to die with you. It says in verse 33 that Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Don't worry, Jesus. I've got your back. He says, I've got this. Don't worry. But then Jesus tells him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And how many times have we felt something so strongly just like Peter? That we know an attack's coming, that, that God has revealed to, that to us, whether it's, you know, through somebody else, whether it's through, you know, just your time of, of prayer with the Lord by yourself, whatever way it is, that, that you know the attack's coming and you just know you are fully prepared and you've got this and you, you fall flat on your face. I've done it countless times. You know, that's why Paul's exhortation to walk circumspectly not as fools to to constantly have your head on a swivel to be aware of your surroundings spiritually as well as physically is so meaningful to me because there have been times where I have felt like I could just conquer the world and I have fallen flat on my face because I wasn't prepared and I wasn't looking to Jesus I was looking to myself and that's what Peter was doing here Peter knew that without a doubt he would go to death but Jesus loves Peter so much that he tells him the truth about his own heart that Peter was going to deny Jesus three times before the night was over. And he guaranteed it. Peter even proceeded to defend Jesus. Later on in Luke 22, verses 49 through 51, and in John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, we see that there's this altercation that takes place when they come to get Jesus, and Peter takes one of the two swords that they had against this whole mob, and he slices off a servant's ear. And I've talked about this before. Of all the people that you could pick, why would you pick the servant? Like, if you were really trying to defend Jesus, wouldn't you pick the biggest, baddest guy there and try to make a statement? But Peter picks the servant for whatever reason. Maybe he was the closest. I don't know. But whatever it was, Peter picks this guy and he cuts off his ear. Because I'm willing to go to prison, even die for you. And Jesus says, look, it's not the time. This isn't the way. He heals the man's ear and Jesus goes with him. And then what happens later on in Luke twenty-two fifty-four? it says, Having arrested Jesus, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance at a distance. So you're already starting to see the distance grow. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard, sat down together, Peter sat among them, and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. After a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. 
And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And this was not a coincidence. In that moment, after the rooster crowed, after he had just denied Christ for the third time, Jesus turned and he caught Peter's eye. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out and he wept bitterly. And how many times have we felt that? Because we have denied Jesus Christ, whether overtly because we, we said we weren't Christians or that we didn't believe all those things, or maybe we've done it by our actions, or maybe we've done it just by failing to acknowledge Jesus in the presence of others. You know, sometimes it's as simple as, you know what, we're in a public place, we're at a restaurant, this is a family gathering, you know, do I really need to pray? Like, can I, could I just skip it right now? I think God's going to understand. How many times have we denied Jesus and then been, been shown our sin, to show, be shown our failure and have our hearts broken and torn because of it, and maybe even to feel condemnation from the enemy as Satan comes in and he starts planting all these thoughts and these doubts that, well, you know, if, you're, if you were such a great Christian, you wouldn't have done this, so how could you possibly now minister into the life of somebody else? How can you possibly talk to somebody else about their hurt, about their brokenness, about their need for a Savior, about their sin, when you're doing these things that you just did? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but, but I think that all of us can, can relate to that. I think at one point or another, and probably more often than we would care to admit, we find ourselves in that place where we are broken because we recognize that we have failed to acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Peter denied Jesus three times, just like he was told he would, but Jesus also told him something else that is important that we remember and not skip over. Going back to Luke twenty-two thirty-two, he says, But I have prayed for you, that's the first thing, that your faith should not fail. That's the second thing. And then the last thing is when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So Jesus prayed, and I mean, you got to believe that if anybody's prayers are going to get answered, it's Jesus, right? So if Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, that's a prayer that was answered. So that means that despite all the things that Peter just did, and all the ways that he continued to fail, because he wasn't perfect, we don't know all the other things that he did, but, but we know he wasn't perfect, that his faith never failed, that it faltered, that he made mistakes, that he still had issues, that he even denied Christ three times, literally denied knowing him. And yet that didn't count in God's eyes as his faith failing. What a beautiful encouragement that should be for us to understand that we are going to make mistakes but that we can still be restored and we can still be used. So the first thing was that he prayed for him, and Jesus and the Spirit are praying constantly for us. But the second thing is that part of that is that our faith would not fail, that if we are children of God, if we have truly come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, given our lives to him and are being transformed, then our faith cannot fail. It can falter because it is meager and our strength is small, but it is that small, meager amount of faith in a great God that does immensely powerful and amazing, extraordinary things. And that faith cannot fail because of who it is in. 
not because of who is holding it, but because of who it is in, and that's in Jesus Christ. And so he says that your strength should not fail. And then the last thing there was the encouragement, the exhortation, that when you have returned, when you have been restored, when you have been reconciled back unto me, that then you would go and you would turn around and you would strengthen your brethren. That instead of allowing the enemy to knock you down and to keep you there, to keep you feeling that condemnation, to keep you feeling like you can't minister into the life of somebody else, to instead be challenged and encouraged to get back up, to be restored, and then to turn around and to use your own life, your own experiences in the way that God has ministered to you, the way that God has shown his grace, his mercy, and his love to you, and has empowered you with his Holy Spirit to then turn around and strengthen your brethren who also struggle, who also fail, who also fall. That's what it's about. Because we are a family. We need to be a family, especially now, as the days are growing closer to the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I talked about it already. The, this world, especially, we see it clearly in this nation. There are so many things that are taking place even now that 10 years ago seemed crazy. 20 years ago, you never would have thought things would happen. And yet now they've just become commonplace. So many different social issues. Social justice is what they're calling it. It's not justice, it's injustice, it's unholy, it's unrighteous in so many different ways. And yet God has called us to live here, not for eternity, but for, for a time, and while we're here for a purpose, that we would be able to bring others to him. His love, his power, his grace are shown through us as he restores us, and he continues to work not only in us, but also through us. And the last thing that I want to leave you with tonight is to understand that evil is not as dumb as we would like to believe. In Luke 22:52 and 53, Jesus said to the chief priests, the captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The enemy is not dumb. The enemy is smart. Obviously not as smart as God, but the enemy is smart. The attacks, they come fast and furious, and they come in the exact right places. They come in all of the weak links in your armor. And that's why it's all the more important that we stay close to Jesus, that we walk with our heads on a swivel, that we walk circumspectly, not as fools, redeeming the time, that we are empowered, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are aware of these things. In 1 Peter chapter 5, again, this is Peter talking. He, of course, understood it. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, be aware, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he says, after you've suffered for a little while, he didn't pull the punch. He didn't say, before you suffer for a little while, before you ever have to endure hardship. He says, all who, who, who call me, Lord and Savior, all, all who come to me, all who know me, all who love me, all who proclaim me, 
you're going to face persecution. And then he says, though, that after you've suffered just a while, a little while, a microscopic instant in the grand scheme of eternity, that he will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And I pray that for you. I pray that for myself. I pray that for my wife and kids. I pray that for every member of the body of Christ, that God would perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us, and that in our lives, he would receive the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that your work doing within us, for, for the blessings, the gifts that you bestow upon us, for the calling that you place upon our lives, for the responsibilities that you give to us. We thank you for the blessings that you have allowed us to be stewards over. We thank you for the people in our lives that, that you have used to minister to our hearts, to challenge us, to hold us accountable, but also to encourage us to love us, to show us grace and mercy. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be that in the lives of those around us. We pray, Lord, that, that just as your word says, that you would perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. Lord, that we would be completely sold out for you. That there would not be a time that we would falter and fade. But Lord, we know that, that there are times that those things take place. And so our prayer tonight is that when those things do happen, that you would continue to encourage us, that you would restore us, that you would help us to see the error of our ways, and that you would help us to turn away from that, to help us to repent and turn back to you. And then that we would be able to be used for your further glory and for your further honor. We pray, Lord, for each of the families represented in this room tonight and for those that are joining us over the internet. Lord, we just pray for your protection upon our families. Lord, the attacks are coming fast and furious in this country, and, and yet even then, still not nearly as bad as for our brothers and sisters in so many other places of the world. So we pray for the protection of our families, but we also pray for the protection of our brothers and sisters across the globe, for all those that are being beheaded, for those that are being crucified, that are being beaten, that are, are being abused in so many different ways. Lord, we pray for their protection. We pray for, for their strength, for their encouragement. We pray, Lord, that you would still be honored and glorified in their lives, in our lives, and in everything that is said and done on this earth. And so we give you all that we are. We commit ourselves to you and to the furtherance of your family here on this earth. And we ask and pray all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen.